Those in Orange County, New York, who knew 16-year-old Paula Pereira couldn't help but like her. She was a bubbly, confident, carefree girl who performed well in school, enjoyed the company of her tight-knit group of friends as much as a good book, and was active in the church youth group. Paula never complained, even though she was known to have had an unhappy home life. Despite her normally cheerful demeanor, Paula's problems at home peaked in 1981, leading to her unsuccessful attempt at suicide by overdosing on pills. From that moment on, while on the bus en route to school, the kids mockingly called Paula Tylenol, but she refused to let the comments get to her. On many occasions, she chose to bypass the school bus altogether and instead hitchhiked to class. Though Paula's boyfriend begged her not to hitchhike because of the inherent dangers, she ignored his pleas, claiming that only nice people pick me up. Then, on March 1, 1982, Paula thumbed a ride one last time. That day, she was feeling sick and left Valley Central High School early to go rest at her boyfriend's house. She hitched a ride from a Cornell University student driving home from spring break. She was never seen alive again. Eighteen days later, Paula's battered remains were found in a barren stretch of ground off Route 211 in Wallkill, New York. She had been brutally raped, sodomized, and strangled before being tossed into the marshy area off the side of the road. Even though police frantically tried to find her murderer, the case remained unsolved for almost two decades. Then, in 1994, the first break in the case occurred during a televised BBC interview in which convicted serial killer Michael Ross claimed responsibility for two unsolved New York murders. Michael suggested that one of the women he killed, he disposed of in the area of Wallkill, New York. Police followed up on the case and determined that the woman Michael was referring to was, in fact, Paula. To support their conjecture, they obtained DNA samples for Michael, which were analyzed and compared with preserved evidence taken from Paula's clothes. The DNA samples were a match, and Michael was formally charged with her murder in the fall of 2000. Michael Ross was later quoted saying to police during an interview, As soon as I saw Paula, she was dead. Paula was not Michael's first victim, nor would she be his last. In fact, before his capture in 1983, he would claim responsibility for the murders of eight young women. Daniel and Patricia Ross's marriage was beset with problems from the beginning. The troubles began when Patricia, Pat, was in high school and became unexpectedly pregnant, which led to their forced union. Pat wanted no part of the marriage or of being the wife of a chicken farmer in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Yet, at the time, she had little choice. Michael Ross was born on July 26, 1959. He would be the first of four children born to the hapless couple over the space of five years. During Michael's youth, there was evidence that his mother, wrought with psychiatric problems, mentally and physically abused him. In fact, Pat purportedly became so psychologically unstable and volatile towards her children that she was admitted to a psychiatric institution on at least two separate occasions, and Daniel eventually became the primary guardian of the children. When Michael was eight, there was evidence that his teenaged uncle, who babysat him and formed a close bond with the boy, sexually abused Michael before committing suicide at the age of 14. Despite the trauma Michael endured, he managed to excel in school. He had a special interest in animal science and dreamed of one day owning his own farm. In 1977, after graduating from Killingly High School, 
Michael went on to study agricultural economics at Cornell University's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. While at school, Michael was socially active and joined several organizations, including the Alpha Zeta Fraternity and the Future Farmers of America. Moreover, he became involved in several relationships with some beautiful young co-eds, one to which he became engaged. However, the relationships always ended in failure, and Michael's dream of the perfect family began to be crowded out by other fantasies, disturbing, violent, sexual fantasies. It didn't take long for his fantasies to spiral out of control. During his second year at school, Michael started to stalk young women. Eventually, his violent sexual urges took on a new dimension when he began raping many of the women he stalked. Amazingly, he evaded capture for a couple of years. However, in September 1981, shortly after his graduation, he finally landed himself in jail for assaulting a young teenaged girl. At the time of the incident, Michael was working as a management trainee for Cargill Inc. in North Carolina. During a business trip to Illinois, he kidnapped a 16-year-old girl, dragged her into the woods, and gagged her before being interrupted by the police in mid-activity. Michael was arrested for unlawfully restraining the girl, was fined $500, and put on probation. The police had no idea that the man they arrested and subsequently let go was responsible for not only assault, but something much more sinister. That May, the body of Zung Nok Tu, 25, was discovered in Fall Creek, located at the bottom of a gorge in Ithaca, New York. Initially, police believed that she committed suicide. Eventually, they realized that Zung was actually the victim of a brutal rape and murder. Michael's violent fantasies had taken a deadly toll, and Zung would be considered his first known murder victim. Following the murder of Zung, Michael tried to kill himself, but he didn't because he was too chicken to do it. Michael tried to convince himself that he would never hurt another person ever again, yet by that time his compulsions had gotten the better of him. Michael was a man out of control and on the verge of a murderous rampage. On January 5, 1982, Michael abducted 17-year-old Tammy Williams while she was walking home from her boyfriend's house in Brooklyn, Connecticut. She was later found and strangled not far from where she disappeared. Michael was never suspected in the case and thus had the freedom to continue his killing spree, which resulted in the murder of Paula Pereira approximately two months later. In April 1982, Michael struck again, this time in Croton, Ohio, near to where he had found a new job at a local egg farm. At around midnight on April 2nd, Michael went to the home of a pregnant off-duty policewoman, claiming that his car broke down. He asked for a flashlight, which the woman supplied him with, and Michael left, allegedly to fix his car. Michael returned a short while later, asking if he could use the woman's telephone. He spoke briefly with the woman and told her his name and where he worked. After gaining the woman's confidence, Michael attacked her. The woman put up a courageous fight and managed to scare Michael off. She then promptly called her co-workers, who rushed to her assistance. After receiving a description of the assailant, his name, and where he worked, the police were able to locate Michael the next day. He was immediately arrested and charged with assault. He was bailed out of jail by his parents a little more than a month later and sent home to Connecticut for 16 days of psychiatric study. The psychiatric report shows that Michael was indeed suffering from psychological problems, which he blamed on the 1981 divorce of his parents. 
Surprisingly, even though he had a criminal record including two sexual offenses, there was little action taken to ensure that he remained under constant psychiatric evaluation or police surveillance. This allowed Michael the freedom to carry on with his murder rampage. On June 15, 1982, Deborah Taylor, 23, and her husband ran out of gas near Danielson, Connecticut and split up to look for a filling station. While she was walking on the side of the road, Michael abducted and strangled her. A jogger found her skeletal remains approximately four months later. Michael was not initially suspected, but he would later be linked to the case. In August 1982, Michael finally appeared in an Ohio court for assaulting the pregnant policewoman. During the proceedings, he pled guilty to the charges, was fined $1,000, and served four months in jail before being let out on probation. The probation report suggested he make better use of his free time, perhaps by taking classes, starting a jogging program, or learning to fly, hoping the activities might discourage his violent behavior. The recommendation was shocking and pointless. It isn't difficult to understand that such activity would do little, if nothing, to deter a violent serial. Once out on probation, Michael went back to Connecticut and began working as a door-to-door -door insurance salesman. He was able to secure the job after lying about his criminal record during the application process. It's likely that he spotted his next victim while canvassing potential clients. On November 19, 1983, Robin Stavinsky, 19, disappeared while hitchhiking in Norwich, Connecticut. Joggers found her remains a week later near a local hospital. She had been raped and strangled. At the time of the discovery, investigators working on the case were able to link Stavinsky's murder with that of Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor's because of the marked similarities between the cases. Most of the victims were of similar stature, had been sodomized, found face down, and strangled. It was becoming increasingly clear to the police that a serial killer was in their midst, yet at the time they had few clues as to the identity of the killer. Working with the evidence taken from the crime scenes, they worked frantically to put a face to the serial murderer. Then, on Easter Sunday, 1984, Michael committed his first double murder. Fourteen-year-old friends April Brunet and Leslie Shelley from Griswold, Connecticut, were walking home from the movies en route to a friend's house when Michael kidnapped them. When the girls' bodies were later found, it was clear that they had both been brutally raped and murdered in a similar manner as Michael's previous victims. Two months later, Michael claimed his eighth murder victim. On June 13, 1984, 17-year-old Lisbon, Connecticut resident Wendy Barabo was abducted in broad daylight. Witnesses claim that they last saw Wendy alive walking down State Highway 12, allegedly on her way to a convenience store. Her remains were found several days later. Like Michael's other victims, Wendy had been raped and strangled. However, unlike the previous murder cases, there were witnesses who say they noticed a thin white man with glasses driving a blue late-model Toyota following her the day she disappeared. It turned out to be the break investigators were hoping for. Detective Michael Malchik, who worked on the Tammy Williams case, was assigned to chief investigator of Wendy's murder case. Malchik began his investigation by pursuing the car that witnesses claimed to have seen. Malchik printed out a list of 3,600 locally owned blue Toyotas that matched the description. Coincidentally, the first person on the list he visited on June 28, 1984, was Michael Ross. During the interview, Malchik immediately became suspicious of the young man. 
Malchik described the visit as a roller coaster ride because every time he was about to leave the apartment, Michael would drop him a crumb that would make him think that he should ask more questions. Eventually, Michael couldn't withhold his ghastly secrets any longer and confessed to some of his crimes. Initially, he told Malchik only of Wendy Barabo's murder, but then later, when in police custody, he confessed to also killing April Brunet, Leslie Shelley, Tammy Williams, Deborah Taylor, and Robin Stavinsky. It would be years before he would claim responsibility for killing Paula Pereira and Zung Nok Tu. In July 1987, Michael went on trial for Deborah Taylor and Tammy Williams' murders. He pled guilty to their murders and received a maximum sentence of 120 years. The following month, he was tried for the murders of Wendy Baudibo, April Brunet, Leslie Shelley, and Robin Stavinsky, and was convicted. He received a total of two life sentences and six death sentences. During and after the trials, Michael became angered because he felt that the judge and jury were biased and the testimonies of some of the witnesses were grossly inaccurate. Yet, probably his greatest source of irritation was that he felt the court failed to recognize his alleged mental illness. Michael suggested that this was most evidence when the judge disallowed testimony by psychiatrist Dr. Robert Miller. The defense team claimed that had Dr. Miller been allowed to submit his testimony concerning Michael's psychological state, the jury would have been more lenient during the penalty phase. Moreover, his mental illness might have even been considered a mitigating factor which could have spared him the death penalty altogether. In protest, Michael filed a long list of complaints and petitioned the state for a new trial. After examining his case, the Judicial Review Council and the Statewide Grievance Committee dismissed his complaints. However, Michael continued the appeals process and eventually his case was taken to the High Court. In July 1994, the Connecticut State Supreme Court decided to uphold Michael's murder convictions but overturned the death sentences, finding that the original trial judge excluded evidence that might have helped Ross prove he suffered from a mental illness or defect. As a result, the court ordered a new penalty hearing, which would be delayed for several years. In the meantime, Michael battled his psychological problems and courted death. The earliest account of Michael's purported mental illness began when he was a little boy. As a child, he fantasized about women about bringing them to a special underground place, hiding them, and keeping them to love him. He was further quoted as saying that as a teenager, he molested several little neighborhood girls, and as an adult, his fantasies grew more sexual and progressively more violent. Some believe that Michael's anger towards his mother was one of the primary contributors to his aggressive feelings towards women. However, it's also been suggested that his violent behavior was actually due to a hormonal imbalance in the brain. What's most likely is that it was a combination of both factors. In his writings from jail, Michael often described his sexual violent urges as a separate uncontrollable entity that would suddenly take him over without warning and propel him to do things he knew were wrong. He wrote in a 1998 article titled, It's Time for Me to Die, An Inside Look at Death Row, that his urges were like living with an obnoxious roommate that he could not escape because it was always present. He further stated that he would often get orgasmic pleasure from his fantasies and acting them out, yet he would also be disgusted later by the exact same thoughts. After relieving himself from his fantasies, he said he felt such a sense of loathing and self-hatred 
that he often longed for death to liberate him from his mental torture. A vast majority of the psychiatrists who treated Michael diagnosed him with a paraphiliac disorder known as sexual sadism. In his book, The Psychopathic Mind, Origins, Dynamics, and Treatment, Dr. J. Reed Malloy described sexual sadism as the conscious experience of pleasurable sexual arousal through the infliction of physical or emotional pain, which is characteristic in most sexual psychopaths. His psychiatrist made several attempts to reduce Michael's repetitive thoughts, urges, and fantasies of the degradation, rape, and murder of women, which he claimed he couldn't get out of his head. Michael said that the female contraceptives Depo-Provera provided some relief of his symptoms and that they helped to reduce his testosterone levels to below prepubescent levels, further leading to a significant reduction in his violent urges and fantasies. However, the relief was temporary. Michael developed liver problems as a direct result of the hormones and had to discontinue using his medication. Soon afterward, he complained that the violent sexual urges re-emerged. A little more than a year later, Michael was given an alternative form of female contraception, which allowed him to regain control over sadistic impulses to attack women. The medication purportedly allowed Michael the clarity to grasp the full extent of his horrific crimes. Even though he claimed he could sparsely remember the details of the murders, he did begin to realize some of the agony he caused the families of his victims. He claimed in his article that he was haunted by their pain, but knew that there was nothing he could do to absolve what he did. Consequently, Michael decided to put himself and the families of his victims out of their prolonged state of misery by volunteering for execution. His controversial decision would be met with mixed reactions ranging from anger to relief and caused a temporary upheaval in the system that was unaccustomed to prisoners seeking state-assisted suicide. Michael spent the better part of four years working with state prosecutors to circumvent a new penalty hearing and secure an agreement to proceed directly to the death chamber. On March 11, 1998, Michael signed a 10-page death pact with state prosecutor C. Robert Sadie, acknowledging his crimes were cruel and heinous and pleading with the court to hasten his execution. However, a superior court judge decided to invalidate Michael's agreement with Sadie, declaring that it was unconstitutional and unsettling. The court further ruled that a new penalty hearing must be held, which was exactly what Michael wanted to avoid. The penalty phase retrial was scheduled to begin in April 1999 with the selection of the jury. That same month, Michael allegedly had a change of heart and decided that he no longer wanted to be executed. His team of defense lawyers planned to revert to their original strategy, which was to prove that Michael's mental illness was in fact a mitigating factor that would make him ineligible for a death sentence. The prosecution team wanted to push for capital punishment and intended to prove the existence of so-called aggravating factors. They would have to wait a long time before either side would be able to present their arguments. Approximately 10 months after jury selection began and a great deal of legal wrangling, Michael's penalty hearing finally got underway. It took three days for the prosecution to present their case, which began with the testimony of the victim's relatives and police officers that investigated the murders and ended with a videotaped BBC interview of Michael discussing how his victims suffered. Their arguments were powerful, as was the testimony of the victim's families, making it an even more difficult challenge for the defense team to sway the jury. The defense had their work cut out for them, but they too were able to present a strong case. The jury listened to testimony from Michael's prison psychiatrist, Dr. Stanley Kapuczynski, 
who stated that his client suffered from sexual sadism and that the symptoms were relieved by drug therapy. His statement supported the defense's contention that Michael's murderous rampage was provoked by his mental illness. Michael's father also took the stand and pled for his son's life. Daniel Ross said that he felt it would be a mistake to execute Michael Ross because he is a biological specimen that could ultimately provide valuable information into the psychopathology of a serial killer. Michael's aunt also testified on his behalf and asked that he be spared from the death penalty. Perhaps one of the most unexpected persons to take the stand in Michael's defense was Sam Reese Shepard, the son of Dr. Sam Shepard, who was convicted of killing his mother in Ohio in 1954. During his testimony, Sam openly opposed the death penalty and suggested that Michael would be of better use to science than he would be dead. Yet, the defense's defining moment was when they introduced Dr. Miller's testimony, which was barred from Michael's original trial. In a letter written to the court 13 years earlier, Dr. Miller suggested that Michael's mental state was a mitigating factor, which he believed should play a role in the type of penalty that was handed down to his client. Following the induction of one of their most important pieces of evidence, the defense made their closing arguments, then rested their case, hoping that the jury would agree with Dr. Miller's conclusion. After nine days of deliberation, the Superior Court jury of nine men and three women finally reached a verdict. On April 6, 2000, Michael once again received the death penalty for the brutal murders of April Brunet, Wendy Baribo, Robin Stavinsky, and Leslie Shelley. Michael stood impassively as the verdicts were read, whereas the families of the victims wept or sat with bowed heads. It had taken the state a total of 16 years since Michael's arrest to secure a death sentence against him, and they were determined to make it stick this time. If the state got its way, Michael would be one of the first people to be executed in the state of Connecticut since 1960. In August 2001, while his death penalty sentence was pending appeal, Michael was extradited from his death row prison cell in Connecticut to the Sullivan County Maximum Security Prison in Fallsburg, New York. He was transferred to Orange County to face arraignment in the rape and murder of Paula Pereira. On September 24, 2001, Michael stood before Judge Nicholas DeRosa and pled guilty to the first-degree murder charges. The following month, he was sentenced to 8 to 25 years in prison for brutally killing Paula. Surprisingly, Michael expressed relief when the sentence was handed down and was quoted saying, I regret that this has taken so long to be taken care of. Michael managed to evade being charged for the rape and murder of Zung Nok Tu in 1981. Tompkins County District Attorney George Dentes suggested that it was pointless to seek a conviction against Michael in her murder because he had already been sentenced to death in Connecticut. Besides, Zung's family in Vietnam had no interest in pursuing the case and would prefer not to relive the pain that had torn their family apart. The Connecticut Supreme Court ruled to uphold Michael's previous death sentence in May 2004, despite repeated appeals by his lawyers. The following October, an execution date had been set for January 26, 2015. Michael had decided to discontinue his 18-year-long appeals process and had instead accepted his fate. Finally, on May 13, 2005, Connecticut granted Michael Ross's request when it carried out its first execution in 45 years. The New York Times reported that, In defiance of public defenders and others who wanted to save him, Michael Bruce Ross chose to forego further appeals. Ross convinced judges he was competent, smirked at psychiatrists who said he was suicidal, 
and often seemed exasperated by his inability to reshape his image. This was not an act of suicide by Michael Ross, said defense attorney T.R. Paulding, who helped Ross with his appeals. It was a decision that required courage. Michael Ross was executed by lethal injection at Osborne Correctional Institution in Somers, Connecticut. Nine members of his victims' families witnessed his final moments. Ross chose not to make any final statement. <laughs>